rest of the Left's podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Mother Jones Radio, Peter B. Collins, and Countdown. The quintessential story that Ben is referring to is the press is just barely, barely mentioned it and just skated on by something that I think is tremendously important from last week. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we were on vacation last week, and that's when I bounce off the walls. When I see a story like this and we can't do a show about it, I call everybody I know. I'm like, I can't believe nobody else is talking about it. And here it is. Brigadier General Mark Sheet came out. He's three weeks from retirement, works at the Pentagon. He was one of the original five or six people at Central Command that did the uh, plan for Iraq, war gaming on Iraq. On September 10th, 2001, he was selected to be the chief of logistics war plans. And uh, like I said, there were only five or six people that Rumsfeld came to and said, we want you to put together a plan for what we're going to do in Iraq, uh, General invading Mark, Iraq. Mark Scheid right now is the commander. He's retiring, as Jack said, of the, is the reti- uh, commander of the Army Transportation Corps. Mark Scheid said two things that uh, were tremendously important. One is he said Rumsfeld actively, actively decided not to do any post-war planning. Okay. See, a lot of people thought, oh, that was negligence. Uh, that was incompetence. I can't believe they didn't prepare it adequately. But the reality is... Like, it wasn't... I mean, it was negligence. It was incompetence. But it was not an oversight. No. That was an active decision. Is and that because he intentionally wanted to stay in Iraq after the war? L- let's get to why it is in a second. Let, let me tell you what Mark, Brigadier General Mark Scheid said first, and then we'll explain why it is and why it's not really incompetence. He said, first of all, we're not going to do any post-war planning. I've made that decision. Then he went further. Rumsfeld went further and said, I will fire anyone that mentions post-war planning going forward. I will, I'm going to say that again. Okay? This is it's, it, it's in the actual newspapers. This is uh, actual quotes from, I know a, a lot of conservatives are like, oh, liberal media. Call Brigadier General Mark Scheid, if you like yourself, and ask him. He's quoted as saying, anyone when Rumsfeld said, anyone who mentions post-war planning will be fired. <laughs> that is, that's not a little thing. That's a colossal thing. Now, you wonder why we didn't have any post-war planning. Because we chose not to have post-war planning. In fact, if anybody tried to do post-war planning, they'd be fired. Now, you know what post-war planning is? It's like diplomacy, and it's weak. General Scheid said the planners uh, uh, to continued to try to write what was called Phase 4, or the piece of the plan that included post-invasion plans like security, stability, and reconstruction. No, we yeah. wouldn't want any of those. Security, stability, and reconstruction. Who would? That's ridiculous. Nonsensical. Who would want that? Now, let me answer Jill's original question. Uh, why? Why would anybody do this? It's maniacal. It's crazy. And by the way, should be a firing offense immediately. Can you imagine any other Secretary of Defense goes to their president and says, oh, yeah, by the way, I said we shouldn't do any uh, planning after the war. Yeah, after we win you know, against the Germans or the Japanese, we shouldn't have any plans at all. Let me, uh, uh, before you answer the question, let me throw it. George Bush always bragging about how he's the CEO president. What kind of a CEO wouldn't plan for the result of it? Like, we're, we're going to do a hostile takeover of this company. Okay, well, then what do we do with all the employees? Don't talk about that. If you're talking about what we're going to do after we take over the company, I'll fire you. <laughs> what the hell kind of CEO is that? They'd be like, yeah, CEO, you know, Enron. Because Bush doesn't care. He doesn't care to govern at all. That's a, a different story. All right, so get into why Rumsfeld, what Jill's, Jill's question, why didn't Rumsfeld want this? The reason Rumsfeld didn't want this, Jill, is because uh, he was afraid, and Brigadier General Mark Scheid uh, talks about it. He says if he, he was afraid that if anybody talked about post-war planning, Americans might get the idea that this is, might be messy mm-hmm. and there might be problems after the war, and they might not want to invade. See, it was never an honest decision of whether we should go to war or not. They'd already made up their mind whether it was going to be messy, whether it was uh, going to be clean. It didn't matter. We were going to war. Whether it made sense, whether the consequences are going to be worth it or not, it didn't matter. We were going to war. Here's what uh, here's what uh, General Scheid said. He said he said we will not do that, meaning uh, talk about post-war planning, because the American public will not back us if they think we are going over there for a long war. Right. That, but you hold on, everybody, hold on for a second. That is a direct admission by the Secretary of Defense, that he knew the American people weren't behind this war, that it was a war of choice, and that he actively stopped intelligence gathering 
to see if we should go to war. See, they blame it on the intelligence. They say, oh, no, we didn't have the proper intelligence. Dude, you didn't allow them to get the proper intelligence. In fact, you said to them, if you get the proper intelligence, I'll fire you. Yeah, and, and of course, as we know, the CIA had so many people saying, I'm, we're not sure about this, we don't know, we, but it didn't fit in with the plan. The plan was, this is easy, this is quick, he has weapons, we'll get it done, we'll get in, we'll get out, nobody will get hurt. And then after all this, we have a gigantic mess in Iraq because we didn't do any planning, because of all the cronies that we sent into, hopefully we'll get it, it, into that later in the show, that, that we sent into Iraq, 24-year-olds that had no background in finance were sent in to st set up the Iraqi st uh, stock exchange. Now, it's insanity. Just why? Because they were Bush supporters. It was insanity. And after all that, George Allen says this week that if he could, he'd do it over again. And Dick Cheney said last week, if he could, he'd do it over again. She'd do anything to sparkle in his eye. She would suffer, she would fight and compromise. She's been wishing on the stars that shine so bright. Her answers to questions that will haunt her tonight. But first, do you have friends or family who still don't get quite how dishonest, how rife with lies and omissions the road to Iraq was, how those lies are perpetuated to this day? Mother Jones Magazine and MotherJones.com have compiled an exhaustive timeline going back to 1992 of how the case for war was, rather than being unveiled, put over on the American public. We take this now to Jonathan Stein and Tim Dickinson, creators of the Mother Jones timeline, Lie by Lie. Jonathan is a freelance journalist, formerly with Mother Jones Magazine, and Tim is contributing editor to Rolling Stone Magazine. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Hi, Angie. I'm going to start with you, Tim, since you initially started the work on this and talk to you about why the timeline begins in 92, because, of course, we've had a rocky road with Iraq for many decades. Can, can you tell us how we started in 1992 for this? I think in, in putting together the timeline, we wanted to uh, really get this back to the, the root causes. And obviously, uh, the first Gulf War, um, Dick Cheney was the, was the Secretary of Defense. And at the time, everyone thought it was a good, very good idea to not get bogged down in Iraq. But as the world has changed, it's clear that Dick Cheney sort of felt that there was unfinished business there. And so I think in terms of understanding... The, the arc of, of the current war that we're in, it's important to understand that this is really a continuation of the business that was started uh, with the Kuwait conflict and the Gulf War. Now, from that point, I want to acquaint our listeners with exactly how this works, because uh, timelines we grew up with on school were basically long strips of papers with little indentations where things happened. This is the online version is interactive. The print version that is out in the September-October magazine is beautifully illustrated, so you know exactly what's happening with each little floating head as Cheney is implicated in one thought. There's his little mug. So let's talk about this online version, which is interactive, and Jonathan is kind enough to be a guide here. Not that you need much of one, but you're presented, when you go to motherjones.com, the top link on the page left is going to take you right to lie by lie. That is the interactive timeline. And then we're faced with a sliding scale that takes us month by month through each year. Jonathan, this is searchable. So, for example, I'm looking for what? Well, let's say you're looking for Donald Rumsfeld's involvement in the uh, last five years, or as the case may be, the last ten years. Uh, in the search field underneath the timeline, you can type in Rumsfeld, and you should get a list of every single entry that includes Donald Rumsfeld. Now, Donald Rumsfeld has had his hand in a lot of different pots here, and so you'll have false intelligence involved, you'll have torture, you'll have Abu Ghraib, uh, you'll have a variety of things. But you'll see Rumsfeld's involvement from beginning to finish. Now, if you want to search the subplots of the pre-war stages, pre-war intelligence, if you will, you can search aluminum tubes, or you can search curveball. These are the types of pre-war intelligence, for lack of a better word, that we have identified now with good reporting in the last two or three years 
as major uh, areas where the Bush administration misled us. And if you search, let's say, Curveball, for example, you will see Curveball's real identity. You'll see the intelligence he provided to the Germans way back five or six years ago. And you'll see how that got to Dick Cheney. You'll see how Dick Cheney represented it in the press. Every stage of Curveball's involvement is available through the search function. And Curveball's far enough back, some of our listeners may not remember. Curveball is? Curveball is uh, an Iraqi um, asylum seeker who went to Germany uh, and essentially created tales of working with biological weapons labs. Uh, the Germans knew that it was bogus and that Curveball was an unreliable person. He was an alcoholic, a former sex offender, drove a taxi cab, though he claimed to be a top engineer. Uh, and American intelligence knew that it was bogus, but what Seymour Hersh has coined the stovepipe kicked in and faulty intelligence went straight to the top. Dick Cheney and his cronies at the Pentagon got a hold of it and it became part of the public consciousness. And here it is. I've, I've actually I've pulled up Curveball and it actually basically extracts from the timeline everything to do with that. And each one is illustrated with various icons. This is true intelligence. This is false intelligence. And one of the most valuable, Tim, is the distinction between the date an event happened or the date a statement was made and the date that the public was let in on that. And that's really illustrative in some of these places. Can I, I think that's, that's sort of in, in many ways the, the prime reason that we decided to put together this timeline because many times newspaper reports are referred to as the first drafts of history. And in this case, they've come in uh, in a fragmentary nature and often tragically out of date, uh, you know, beyond the point at which the information would have been vital to decision makers or to the public who was backing the war. Um, and so part of what we really wanted to try to do was put these puzzle pieces together um, so that you could see precisely what was known at the time, placing pieces of intelligence, pieces of information in their proper uh, place on this arc of the war, um, but then also you know, you know, letting people know that this information wasn't available until 2005, for instance. Um, and and uh, to sort of help understand how it is that we missed some of these red flags, but also to understand what was going on behind closed doors in the administration, what policymakers knew, and what they were projecting to the public at the time. And so the way that works out when you're looking at one of the entries, and I still have the curveball entries in front of me, is we have uh, an instance in which the head of the CIA in Europe met with German intelligence, and he found out at that point that curveball was bogus. And that was in September of 2002. But we only knew, the public only knew, due to a very, very good Los Angeles Times report on November 20th, 2005. And so it says, happened on 9-2002, made public on 11-20-2005. And, as is the case in all entries, there is a link in this entry to the Los Angeles Times report. So you can click on it, and you can read the full, let's say, four, five, six thousand word report on Curveball if you want more information, or you want to see where we're getting, Mother Jones is getting its information from. You know, one of the things I think this is most valuable in, Tim, is that it's going to preserve some of the things we've, we've begun to lose. It's just the way that events move so quickly and we as human beings cram in one thing to our brains and another thing leaves. I wonder if you encountered, as you were putting this together, any information that made you say, oh, yeah, that happened and now is actually now I understand the significance of that. Uh, I mean, I think, I think if you read through the magazine piece, you'll sort of have aha moments like that throughout. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a blogger. I write a blog at, at rollingstone.com. I've, I've been immersed in the day-to-day -day unfolding of this story in a very skeptical manner since it began, really. Um, and there were things that, that I hadn't really put together for myself. And I, I, kn I had known that President Bush, for example, was saying publicly up until probably December of 2002 that I haven't made up my mind. We haven't, you know, you keep saying we're going to go to war. I haven't said that. Nobody said that. Um, but then when you go back and you actually piece this together, you find out that the decision to war was effectively made in March of 2002. Um, and, and Bush famously, and I can't say this on the radio, but said, F Saddam, we're going to go, go take him out. Uh, to a, a meeting between Condi Rice and two uh, senior senators. And, and similarly, Condi Rice told uh, another group of, uh, I guess it was a deputy, to say, who had some doubts about the war, to say, you know, hold your breath because this decision's already, already been made. The ball is already in motion. And so that you have uh, nearly a year between the point when the decision to go to war has been made and the plans are being uh, drawn up and the uh, actual start of the war. And one of the more alarming things is that there's something called the National Intelligence Estimate, um, which is uh, it, it's a synthesis of the best intelligence that the 
various uh, spy agencies have. And so in, in March 2002, the decision to go to war was made, but there was no national intelligence estimate made until September of that year. And so uh, the decision to, make, to go to war was made before the intelligence agencies had come up with their estimate of what uh, Saddam's uh, weapons capabilities were. And so it's, it's in, entirely clear that that effort to fix the intelligence, uh, you know, the, the decision to, the, the policy was in place and addressing of intelligence and, and other information was put together around it and not until September, you know, so it's six months later. And, and for the record, that national intelligence estimate was made at the request of Congress, not the request of the Bush administration. They had no need for the good intelligence before the making the decision because the decision, as Tim said, had already been made. That's Jonathan Stein. He's a freelance journalist and worked together with Tim Dickinson, contributing editor Rolling Stone, on the timeline that appears in both Mother Jones magazine, the new September-October issue, and the online version. You can go to Mother jones.com and it will be the first thing that you see a large uh, a large banner you can click right down there at the front page and you'll go over to our timeline at motherjones.com in, in less than a minute we have left Jonathan this is a work in progress what's going to come next we have a second half of the timeline that takes us from the beginning of the war to the present, and uh, it includes all sorts of things. Um, it includes Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, uh, key misdecisions that crippled the administration's post-war authorities, um, kidnappings, beheadings, troop levels, troop morale, all sorts of stuff. It's not just pre-war intelligence. It's everything that has gotten us into the quagmire we have today. And we'll be talking more about that quagmire when we come back. In fact, hindsight is twenty twenty. A lot of stories take better shape as we look back at them in the timeline. That's still to come. I'm Angie Cuero. This is Mother Jones Radio. This is Mother Jones Radio. Digging deep to bring you real news. This is Mother Jones Radio. I'm Angie Cordero. Just around the corner, we will talk to the writer of a new article in Mother Jones Magazine about an individual who was held at Guantanamo and what his existence there was like. Right now, we're focusing on the timeline in current release on uh, MotherJones.com and in Mother Jones Magazine. They're derived from the same sources. The one online is interactive. Again, that's at MotherJones.com. Jonathan Stein is one of the creators, freelance journalist, and contributing editor to Rolling Stone. Tim Dickinson is on the phone with us as well as we go into to understanding what's in this timeline. Jonathan, you were saying that if you track back, and we can find this in the timeline, if you track back to the various intelligence streams that contributed to what was going on in Iraq, there were doubts even before 9-11. This is one of the things that the timeline is really useful for, because a lot of people see things like aluminum tubes and Niger uranium and uh, Curveball appearing in the press in 2003, 2004, 2005, when the press starts to catch on to what really happened in the pre-war period. But if you go to the timeline, you can search for any one of those things, and you can track it back to the beginning of the timeline. And you'll see that, for example, the Niger uranium scandal that was the 16 words in Bush's State of the Union, as early as fall 2001, way before Joe Wilson made his famous trip to Niger, Italian intelligence sent a report of this potential uranium buy to the CIA, and the CIA debunked it. They called it, quote, amateurish and unsubstantiated. And this was what date? This was in fall 2001, years before it was used in the president's State of the Union. And this sort of thing happens all over the place. For example, Mohammed Atta was the famous uh, 9-11 hijacker that Dick Cheney insisted in public appearances had met with Iraqi intelligence in Prague. He first brought that up in September 2001, suggested it to the CIA as something they might look into. Days later, not not even weeks or months later, days later, the CIA comes back to Cheney and says, this doesn't add up. We have phone records and we have credit card reports putting him in the United States around the time that you allege he met with Iraqi intelligence in Prague. And that was in September of 2001. And Dick Cheney ignored those doubts and used that information in public appearances for years into the future. Tim Dickinson, let me ask you here. There's already been comment online because this is making something of an impact in the online world. 
There's already been a comment online, well, this came from Mother Jones, so you already know what sort of slant it will have. Uh, let me ask you, with all the links that are scattered throughout the timeline, let's talk about what you used as sources and what you considered valid sources. Oh, I, I challenge anyone to discredit our sourcing. I mean, the, uh, in, in as much as we, we uh, stick it to a few members of the Fourth Estate, including Judith Miller and, and uh, Bob Woodward, the materials that we're using to compile this are first-rate reports from places like the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, uh, the London Guardian, the London Times. I mean, it, it, these are not, you know, bloggers that we're relying on. And, and we're also uh, working with, you know, government reports in the 9-11 Commission. And, and uh, I, I think we've been very, very conscious in, in guarding against that kind of criticism. And I, I think if anyone goes through and actually clicks into these links, they'll find that that's uh, unfounded. Now, once we've established him with those who might be critical that we do have a very balanced section of links there, a balanced selection of links, you said one thing that could be discovered through the timeline is, is the interweaving of the torture scandal and the intelligence scandal and the connections people don't see. It's really kind of remarkable, and it, it's um, conscience-shaking, really. Um, there, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Al-Libi who was a, a paramilitary trainer uh, for al-Qaeda who was captured in Pakistan, and he was brought back to the States. And... There was sort of a battle royale between the FBI and the CIA as to how this guy was going to be treated, where the FBI wanted to have a very much a law, law enforcement approach, and the CIA really wanted to take this guy to some uh, undisclosed location and take the gloves off. Uh, and after a personal intervention by George Tenet, um, the CIA won that battle. And so they took Mr. Al-Libby away, um, and I think they rendered him uh, rendered being the practice of shipping a detainee or a suspect off to a country where they are known to use torture practices, and they took him off to uh, Egypt. Uh, and it's a little unclear as to whether the CIA was involved in the questioning there or not, although it, it seems likely that they were. Um, and they used some of the torture techniques that have been brought back from the Middle Ages by the Bush administration, including the uh, waterboarding technique, where, where suspects are led to believe that they're drowning by they put a... a saran wrap or, or a towel over their face that gets submerged in water, and then there's this very deep sensation of dying that is induced. Um, and by subjecting Al-Libi to these techniques, he came up with a, a story that uh, his uh, interrogators wanted to hear, which was that the Iraq government was providing chemical weapons training to al-Qaeda, and this has subsequently been shown to be patently false. However, it ended up in Bush's State of the Union speech, it ended up in Colin Powell's speech, and in fact it became one of the main uh, talking points that girded this case for war. And so there's a very troublesome and, and unconscionable way in which the sacrifice of American ideals and the sacrifice of the American way of doing business and treating prisoners, not only is that a, a, a tragedy for the American way, but it, it in fact helped lead us into this tragically misguided war from which we have uh, very little uh, prospect of removing ourselves simply. Down to the earth I fell with dripping wings heavy things won't fly and the sky might catch on fire and burn the axis of the world that's why Vintage Bush misdirection is uh, Bush's press secretary, Tony Snow, I believe last Thursday, uh, speaking to the press. Here's Tony Snow. I just wonder, if, do you believe, does the president still believe that Saddam Hussein was connected to Sarkawi or al-Qaeda before the invasion? The president has never said that there's a direct operational relationship between the two, and this is important. Zarqawi was in Iraq. Well, and there was a relationship, there was a relationship in this sense. Zarqawi was in Iraq. Al-Qaeda members were in Iraq. They were operating, and in some cases operating freely. From Iraq, Zarqawi, for instance, uh, directed the assassination of an American diplomat in Amman. 
But did they have, you know, a corner office at the Mukhabarat? No. Uh, you know, were they were they getting a line item in Saddam's budget? No. There was no direct operational uh, relationship, but there was a relationship. They were in the country, and I, th I think you I think you understand that the, the, the Iraqis knew they were there. That's the relationship. Saddam Hussein knew they were there. That's it for the relationship. That's that's pretty much it. The Senate report said they didn't turn a blind eye. The Senate the Senate report. Rather than get, you know, and I don't want to get into the vagaries of the Senate report, but it is pretty clear, among other things, again, that there are Al Qaeda operators inside Iraq. And they included Zarqawi, they included a cleric who had been uh, described as the best friend of bin Laden who was delivering sermons on TV. Well, there you go. It's a good thing then we went in to, uh, to get Saddam Hussein instead of Zarqawi, who, yeah. who, who was actually, I guess, the big enemy we were all looking for in Iraq. Right. Well, they were clearly, in, the, the president's no operational relationship, but Ooh. again, the point was there was a relationship. Zarqawi was in Iraq. Al-Qaeda members were in Iraq. Saddam Hussein was in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein ran Iraq. Ergo, a word that people of my generation haven't fully embraced, ergo... <laughs> Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda are one and the same. So this is in response to a question where they're saying, no, we've never said there was a relationship. But listen to this. There is a relationship. So I thought of it like this. Uh, take yourself back a bit to 1866, say, mm -hmm. right? 1865. Uh, I don't want to get into the specifics of the Grant Report. Uh, but let's just say this. Abe Lincoln was in the United States of America. Jefferson Davis was in the United States of America. The Confederate Army was operating, in some cases freely, uh, inside the United States. Uh, from the United States, Jefferson Davis ordered the secession of South Carolina from the Union, mm. from inside the United States of America. There were Jefferson Davis operatives inside the country, and they included Robert E. Lee, operating at times with impunity in Richmond, Virginia. Inside They're, the United States. Inside the United States. A city, a major city inside the United States, just 90 minutes uh, from the capital if you take 95. <laughs> Which, by the way, I, I'm not sure was built in 1865. I don't know for sure. Um, uh, operating with, uh, again, impunity inside Richmond. Therefore, there's a relationship between Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln. Obviously, uh, I, I definitely want, right. I wouldn't call it an operational relationship, but a relationship. But uh, but a relationship. It it's exists. Clear. It's clear. I don't think you're the first one that has connected those dots. Yeah, you know, I, I may be right, and maybe no. I'm just yeah. So so that is not a, a you know we love the the uh, the metaphors on this program, but that is exactly right. the same. Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln were uh, enemies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, uh, by the way, the Senate report, in case you don't know or you want to educate your ignorant Republican friends, uh, by the way, also from a majority Republican Senate, said that Saddam Hussein was enemies with Zarqawi. Yeah, and that's the idea. Enemies Enemy. with Zarqawi. Yes, he was in Iraq. They were enemies in northern Iraq. Uh, the uh, Ansar al-Islam was an al-Qaeda-linked uh, camp of Islamic uh, fundamentalists who uh, were Saddam's enemy. Mm -hmm. So suggesting that there was a relationship is just flat out lying. You can look at it this way, though. I, I always feel like the Bush family was a little competitive with uh, the Husseins. <laughs> right. So Zarqawi, a mutual enemy of the Bushes and the Husseins. So maybe he just needed to take out Saddam first so he could have the glory in getting Zarqawi. Usually the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm. Um, you know, and then there's a half a question from the, the backwards Bush family. From the skeptical reporter, which I like, so that Saddam Hussein knew they were there. That's it for the relationship. That's what the reporter asked. Mm -hmm. And that's good. I give them, they stood up to him a little bit. But no reporter there says what we're saying here, which is the key element of why this is a distasteful point that Tony Snow, and by the way, th the same day George Bush made, or the next day at his press conference, George Bush made the exact same point, uh, which we will, which we will get to, but that they leave out the part that they're enemies. So some instead of saying the Senate report instead of saying so Saddam Hussein knew they were there that's it for the relationship instead it should be Saddam Hussein yeah Tony Saddam Hussein knew what they they were there they were enemies and you're saying that's a relationship that seems uh, really uh, deliberately uh, uh, you know Machiavellian that seems deliberately well, uh, well I'm going to go a step further as usual okay so uh, if I'm a reporter there I got to say Tony Snow I mean 
That's the most asinine thing I've ever heard in my life. And I excuse me for calling you a jackass, but are you saying that every murderer in America has a relationship with George W. Bush? Right. Because that's the argument you just made. Hey, they, he was in Iraq. Saddam Hussein was leading Iraq. Okay, George Bush is leading the United States. We have thousands of murderers and child rapists in the United States. They must have a relationship with George W. Bush. Yeah. Is that what you're arguing, Tony Snow? Is that what you're arguing? George Bush had a relationship with whoever kidnapped and killed John Benet Ramsey. He has a relationship with everybody. He was involved. With I mean, the Crips, the Bloods. Because he lives in America. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, MS-13, every gang, every child molester in the country has a relationship with George W. Bush. Breaking news, tell Tony frickin' Snow. Mark, uh, Mark David Chapman uh, was mm -hmm. in the United States of America. Ronald Reagan was in the United States of America. Ooh. Ronald Reagan killed John Lennon. It must be. It must be. They had a relationship. Ronald Reagan was leading the country. John Lennon winds up dead. I mean, yeah. you put two and two yeah. together yeah. under the Bush logic, under the Tony Snow logic, and you know, it's an open and shut case. Look, how much clearer did the Senate have to say? They were fighting each other. That Zarqawi was in Iraq to fight Saddam Hussein. Oh, come on. And you took that as an excuse. Now, why do you think? And here's another thing the reporter should ask them. NBC's already reported this. Why did we take three different opportunities to kill Zarqawi before the Iraq war and turn him down? Right. B Pentagon came to Bush three times and said, we have Zarqawi, we can kill him. You, know. you want to do it? And he said, no. Why? Exactly because Tony Snow and George Bush could come out here in 2006 and say, hey, Zarqawi was in Iraq. We had to invade Iraq. Not in 2006, of course. They want What was important was to say it in March and April of 2003 mm -hmm. to trick you people and us into believing that we had to go into Iraq because not only did they have weapons of mass destruction, which they didn't have, but they were linked to al-Qaeda, which they weren't. Uh, it is That is the only conclusion you could draw for keeping Zarqawi alive prior to the invasion of Iraq. I don't like reading minds on this show. It's one thing that the three of us disagree with. There is no other conclusion to draw for why we would not have killed Zarqawi ahead of time. I could have been a sailor, I could have been a cook. A real life lover could have been a book. I could have been a signpost, could have been a clock. As simple as a cattle, steady as a rock. I could be here and now I would be, I should be, but how? Our first guest is a professor at Columbia University. He is the Edward Said Professor of Arab Studies and director of the Middle East Institute, Rashid Khalidi, K-H-A-L-I-D-I, Khalidi. And he's an author of many books. Uh, the one that I read when he was on a book tour just a couple of years ago was Resurrecting Empire, Western Footprints in America's Perilous Path in the Middle East. Professor, it's nice to talk with you again. Uh, a pleasure. I, I actually will have a new book out called uh, Under Siege, the story of the Palestinian struggle for statehood. And I hope to be on the West Coast uh, sometime in the fall. Well, excellent. Uh, I'd love to see you again face-to-face. -face. Last time uh, you were on a cell phone in a car when we started the interview. <laughs> And you seamlessly traipsed into the studio uh, without missing a, a beat or a thought. I think that was just luck. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I want to, without, you know, poisoning your mind with any of my silly ideas, uh, tell me what your thoughts are about the Middle East. And the fundamental question, has the foreign policy of the Bush administration made Americans or anybody else safer? Um, it may have made defense contractors feel safer, but I can't think of any segment of humanity that's better off uh, as a result of uh, five and a half, almost six years of, of of this administration's policies in the Middle East. I think that the way in which they have oversimplified and lumped things together, the way they've scared the American public, uh, made people, I think, more ignorant, uh, less understanding of the actual dangers that threaten us. and. It conflated things that shouldn't be put together, inflated things that perhaps should have been deflated. Has 
have really contributed uh, to worsening the situation of, of, of Americans. I think they've also, frankly, increased the dangers to peace and stability in that region. Uh, what we have done in Iraq uh, will have an impact for a very long time to come. I, I wouldn't know how to predict how long. Uh, I don't think it'll be a good impact. I don't think that people will look at Iraq in, the, in, in, in years to come and say, boy, that's a, that's a model I want to follow. I want to have my country consumed by civil war and rent by external intervention for a generation. So I, we, we've created a terrible, terrible situation in Iraq, and our policies elsewhere, I think, have decreased the likelihood that people will rely on law, international law, increased people's reliance on force. I mean, we're relying mainly on force, and I'm afraid that's the example we're, we're setting. And, Professor, haven't we done serious damage to our, uh, our, our aura and that of Israel? A, a Jewish-American friend of mine commented on uh, the 33-day conflict between Israel and Hezbollah and said the curtain has been pulled back on the wizard. Israel has been exposed. Uh, it is not an invincible superpower, even in regional terms. And likewise, I think mired three-plus years into Iraq, 2,600 dead, nearly a trillion dollars expended or committed. Uh, the U.S. is reeling from damage to its aura of invincibility. Well, I think it's certainly true about the United States. Um, I think that we've seen a more precipitous decline in the in the standing of a great power in that region, the most precipitous decline that I can think of in, in modern history. I mean, the British went down fairly quickly, but it took them decades to go from a position of almost uncontested hegemony to, you know, being kicked around by third-rate powers. The United States has done that in a, in a matter of six or seven years. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, by this reliance on force, by by saying and doing things that nobody in the region accepts, believes, or understands. Um, the United States has completely isolated itself and I think has uh, exposed itself as having feet of clay. Uh, in asymmetrical warfare such as the United States has gotten itself into in Iraq, a power like ours really, it, it, well, it, it can conceivably win, but it's not going to win. And I think the Israelis uh, may have seen some of the same sort of thing in, in, in South Lebanon during these 33, 34 days. Though, truth be told, their occupation of South Lebanon up to 2000 taught, or should have taught the Israelis the same thing. That's why they left in the first place, because they really couldn't come to the end of, of the guerrilla warfare that Hezbollah was waging against their occupation forces from 1982 till 2000. Mm -hmm. We're talking with Professor Rashid Halidi from uh, Columbia University. He's the director of Middle East Institute there. And uh, tomorrow at this time on our program in the first hour, we're going to be talking with Professor George. George Lakoff from the University of California at Berkeley. He has a powerful new book out that is about a single word or concept that has been uh, redefined, reframed, repositioned by the Bush administration, and it's the term freedom. Yeah. And uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts, Professor, on the spin that Bush has provided and the receptivity of different peoples in the Middle East to the American concept of freedom which, of course, has been introduced uh, at the point of a gun barrel. Yeah, I think that it's, uh, it's really tragic. Uh, if it were possible, the Bush administration has given freedom a bad name simply by saying, when we help Israel destroy an elected government in Palestine, that's in the interest of freedom. And when we uh, institute a government in Iraq under occupation at the point of a gun uh, and keep our troops there against the wishes of the overwhelming majority of Iraqis, that's freedom. In other words, everything that they do supporting an authoritarian government in Egypt, supporting uh, hideous regimes like that of Libya, which is now our best buddy, uh, it's all in the interest of freedom. Um, I think it, 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 it discredits freedom a little bit the way uh, that the great liberal powers in the first half of the 20th century, Britain and France, uh, discredited some of the ideals with which they were associated by uh, engaging in colonial practices and at the same time saying that they were doing this in the name of you know, French Republican traditions or the British parliamentary uh, or, or British parliamentary traditions. I, I think that we have really terribly, terribly harmed the cause of freedom and liberty in, in the Middle East uh, by our actual policies and by the manifest hypocrisy uh, involved in those in, in those policies, and I think I think George Lakoff is onto something. Frankly, mm -hmm. you, you need only have listened to the president's press conference a week ago, Monday, where he said he, he talked about things in a way which I think nobody in the Middle East recognizes. 
lumping together al-Qaeda, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, and Palestine, talking about these are all terrorists. Well, I mean, there are maybe some things that link these four points on the, on, on the Middle East map together, but almost nobody in the Middle East sees them as the same thing. I think almost no one else in the rest of the world sees them as the same thing. debate seems especially exhausting. It may be due to the steady erosion of the foundation for any productive debate, facts. Our fourth story in the countdown tonight, the persistent lie of a link, a pre-existing link between Iraq and al-Qaeda. President Bush last week told CBS News, quote, one of the hardest parts of my job is to connect Iraq to the war on terror. Of course, any good boss knows how to delegate the hard stuff. And so the past several days have seen a veritable assault by his staff on what in any other plane of existence would constitute consensus reality. The knowledge known to the intelligence agencies of the U.S., Britain, and Israel, to the 9-11 Commission, to most recently the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee, and to many of your sharper domesticated farm animals, that al-Qaeda and Iraq were not partners, allies, or even friends. There were ties going on between al-Qaeda and uh, Saddam Hussein's regime going back for a decade. There were ties between uh, Iraq and al-Qaeda. And the meeting with Ada did not occur. Uh, we don't know. You've got Iraq and al-Qaeda testimony from the director of CIA that there was indeed a relationship. Uh, Zarqawi and Baghdad, um, etc. There was no direct operational uh, relationship, but there was a relationship. What happens when reality, in the form of that Senate report, dares to intrude? Watch. The committee said that there was no relationship. In well, fact, Saddam... I, I haven't seen the report. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. The Senate report, rather than get, you know what, I don't want to get into the vagaries of the Senate report. Let's call in Jonathan Alter, a senior editor at Newsweek and an MSNBC contributor and a presidential historian, author of The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days, The Triumph of Hope. Jonathan, good evening. Hi, Keith. Let's start with the basics. Americans, even media types, especially in crises, historically give top government officials a presumption of credibility until proven dastardly. I mean, we remembered the Maine for 75 years until it was pretty much proved the Spanish did not blow it up. It was an accident. How much of that presumption of governmental credibility remains? Uh, I'd say uh, between zero and none, at least as far as uh, the media goes, and I, th I think any sentient American at this point, uh, they've lost their credibility many, many times over. Does that mean they've lost the argument? No, because uh, as you've been indicating, facts often don't determine the resolution of the argument. So they could, they could end up winning in November um, by distorting the argument. But on, on credibility on the facts, they've lost. They remind me of uh, you know, a politician who's caught in bed with a prostitute and his wife comes in and sees him and he looks up and says to her, who do you believe, me or your cheating eyes? You know, they, they don't have any, uh, any credibility anymore, so they just um, assert something that ain't so and hope that it plays. In particular regarding Iraq and al-Qaeda and the, the link that does not exist except in the minds or at least the speechifying of the administration, is the essential problem here is the turning point, the hinge, what uh, the noted political historian Daffy Duck called pronoun trouble? I mean, does the current administration see all terrorists as equal and one, and therefore to them there really is a link between all bad guys? Is that yeah, simple? I think we'll see this as the period of the great conflation. They conflate, you know, people who have been fighting each other for 700 years, Sunnis and Shiites, 
and they throw them all, they lump them all together. It's a little bit like what happened during the Cold War when all commies were the same. You know, it was about 15 years after the split between the Soviets and the Chinese communists uh, that Washington finally acknowledged that they actually didn't like each other. Before that, it was all commies are the same. It helps to unify the country uh, to fight um, by lumping everybody in together. So that's part of what's happening. Look, Keith, Keith most people aren't paying a lot of attention to all this uh, head, head slamming at the line of scrimmage in Washington. The Republicans just want to get through one message. We want to kill the terrorists more than the other guys. The Democrats, in, in turn, want the, the message to be the war in Iraq is a disaster. So everything that you're hearing from the Republicans is just to drive home that first message. Let's look long term. How much do you think the, the undermining of consensus reality threatens this country's ability to engage in meaningful debate about the threats we face, whether they're terrorists, otherwise, whatever next comes down the pike? It's a tremendous problem because if you move from an evidence-based uh, foreign policy or domestic policy to a, what you could call a faith-based uh, policy, which takes you out of the realm of facts, out of the realm of rational policymaking that's gone on in both Democratic and Republican administrations uh, for many, many years, you're into a whole different place. You know, the, the author Ron Suskind heard about three years ago from an official in the Bush White House, hey, you guys aren't relevant anymore. You're in what he called the reality-based community. We've moved to a different place. So they're recognizing that facts are, 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 for, uh, are, are for wimps uh, and that you know, strength belongs to people who can craft uh, the truth for their own purposes. The problem is that way eventually lies tyranny, not, not here in the United States, but you know, in a larger cosmic sense. If you lose a common ground of facts on which to move forward as a society, nobody can agree on anything and you can't pull together to solve problems. But everybody who's tried that here, dating back to the Alien and Sedition Acts in, in 1801, eventually there's been a tipping point in which that, that uh, faith-based reality has evaporated. Is there a tipping point coming? Is there something to wake people up about this? Oh, I think we've woken up, and that's the good news, Keith. Uh, you know, you have a president who is at historically low levels of popularity. We, when we see that he went up a little bit in the last couple of days, it takes our eye off the ball. The American people figured this out after Katrina. That was the tipping point. So he, it, he, he will be seen uh, as incompetent no matter what he says, no matter what kind of arguments he makes, and even if the Democrats hold on to Congress. I agree with you on the timing of that. It just like uh, all tipping points, it may not be measured immediately. Jonathan Alter, Newsweek and MSNBC. As always, sir, great thanks for your time. Thanks a lot. May you find the way back home. Down and down we go. in arms no more Now that the war is over Have you waited in and been to hell Will you lie upon the sofa See to the decoration of your shell Now that the Now, we just shared Tony Snow's clips on uh, denying the Zarqawi, Al-Qaeda, uh, and Iraq link, and then asserting it right there in the same sentence. Bush did the same thing last week, September 15th, 2006. Friday. Snow's, the, 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 the clip we brought from Tony Snow was Thursday. This is Bush the next day. No, no, I'm still get you set it up. I'm just letting you know. No, I'm just, go ahead, play oh, the right. clip. We don't have a lot of time. Mr. President, you have said throughout the war in Iraq and building up to the war in Iraq that there was a relationship between Saddam Hussein and Zarqawi and al-Qaeda. A Senate Intelligence Committee report a few weeks ago said there was no link, no relationship, and that the CIA knew this and issued a report last fall. And yet, a month ago, you were still saying there was a relationship. Mm. Why, why did you keep saying that? Why do you continue to say that? And do you still believe that? Um, 
point I was making to Ken Herman's question was that uh, Saddam Hussein was a state sponsor of terror and that Mr. Zarqawi was in Iraq. Yeah. He uh, had been wounded in Afghanistan, uh, had come to Iraq for treatment. He had ordered uh, the killing of a U.S. citizen in Jordan. Uh, I, I never said there was an operational relationship. So there he is last week saying the same exact talking point as Tony Snow. Hey, they're in the same country, so they must be related. Not operational relationship, just a relationship. Right. Now, let's go back a little bit. Let's go to uh, June 17th of 2004, see if he says the same thing. Here's President Bush in 04. Well, the reason I keep insisting that uh, there was a relationship between Iraq and Saddam and al-Qaeda because there was a relationship between Iraq and al-Qaeda. This administration never said that the 9-11 attacks were orchestrated between Saddam and al-Qaeda. We did say there were numerous contacts between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. <laughs> I love that. I mean, how stupid do you have to be? And I guess you have to be as stupid as the you know, remaining 40% of the country who are still Republicans. When are reporters going to just start walking in these press conferences with tapes? I mean, they should play exactly the words back that they've said to us for the last four years. Uh, we never said there was a link. There's a link. We never said there's a link between al-Qaeda and Iraq. There's a link. I mean, he says it in the same tape, but we got more. Here he is uh, again in that, that same, same cabinet meeting. In 04. And he was a threat because uh, because he had terrorist connections, not only al-Qaeda connections, but other connections to terrorist organizations. Abu Nadal is one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was a threat because he provided safe haven for a terrorist like Zarqawi. No, he didn't. Who is nope. still killing innocent inside of Iraq. That is a uh, flat-out uh, lie uh, that they provided safe haven. There, it can be described as nothing else other than a, a, a bald-faced uh, lie. And now he says, oh, we never said that, but there you are, in 2004, clearly saying that Saddam Hussein uh, provided safe harbor for Zarqawi, which not only did the Senate say is not true, but you already knew wasn't true at the and, time. And everyone who paid attention to this story. Uh, knew that as well. Do that as far back as 2003. As soon as you learned what Ansar al-Islam was, which is what Zarqawi was linked to. One final time, that was in June. Here's the president again in September, making it as clear as can be that he is lying to the American people about the link between, Zarqa, uh, between Saddam and Zarqawi. Uh, imagine a world in which Saddam Hussein were still in power. This is a man who uh, harbored terrorists, Abu Abbas, Abu Nadal, uh, Zarqawi. There you go. Again, bald-faced lie saying that Saddam Hussein harbored Zarqawi. Twice we have him on tape saying that when he knew that was not true. Now, how much more does the press need before you call a lie a lie? Uh, oh, wow, oh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have sexual relations with that woman. Liar, liar, liar. Uh, but, oh, oh, yeah, I lied about why we went to war with Iraq, even though I knew it. Oh, no big deal. Don't call him on that. That's, emb that's embarrassing. <laughs> right, exactly. It, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, that would be embarrassing to the country. Yeah, oh, I see. Right. God damn it. Do your job, press. Do your job. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I, I actually have a, a bit of a uh, an issue I'd like to discuss and, and maybe get some feedback from you guys. If you remember a couple of days ago, uh, the <clears throat> excuse me, the last clip of the show was uh, Jank from the Young Turks uh, yelling and screaming about the media failing the people because they hadn't made it clear that the Bush administration was lying about the Saddam Hussein 9-11 connection. And his co-hosts at the time were kind of not not so much in favor of blaming the media as kind of spreading the blame equally over the media and the consumers of media. And it's I think that's a, it's a really interesting question. And it kind of comes up again today with with uh, you know just a, taking a look at how facts have essentially left the debate about Iraq and this kind of it, it snowballs a little bit into another issue that I'm concerned with and I'm actually taking part in is this um, 
the fragmenting of the media the way it is, you know, back in the good old days, you know, everybody watched the same news, you know, everyone got their news from the same place, we were all watching Walter Cronkite, and so you can go to work the next day and everyone has the same thing to talk about, and so in a way, things are better now because you have such a variety of sources that you can get your news from, but what I'm concerned about is uh, people only getting news that they already agree with, and nobody ever uh, ever getting news from a source that they don't agree with, or that makes them question their original premise, and so left-wingers get their news from the left-wing, and right-wingers get their news from the right-wing, and we become more and more divided as time goes on. So, I don't know, so I'd just like to hear some of your feedback on that. You know, what what's your take on the media and how it's developing, and and what's your take on responsibility in the media? Is it is it the media's job to make sure that everybody knows what's going on, or is it the people's job to make sure they're paying attention to the stuff that the media is already talking about, and it's not the media's job to, you know, make the most obvious points, giant, bold headlines, just to make sure everybody gets it. So, if you'd like, you can send an email to hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, but what I would actually prefer that you do is go to uh, the the new message and, and forum, uh, the, the message board and forum that is set up, and you can actually access it directly at botlcommunity.com, or you can find it at bestoftheleftpodcast.com, and um, and I'll, I'll start a thread, it's just in the general discussion, and it'll, it'll be obvious, you know, discussion of the media responsibility, something to that effect, I'll, I'll post that in a little while. And uh, I'd just like to hear what you all have to say, and if you do it on the message board, everybody else gets to hear what you have to say as well, and I'm really interested in that, because, I mean, obviously, I'm part of the media fragmentation, and I'm actually concerned about that, you know, how are the positives of my show being, you know, either balanced or outweighed by the negative contribution to this you know, the the negative aspects of media fragmentation, or do I have this totally wrong? Do I not know what I'm talking about and and I, I have nothing to be concerned about? I, I don't know. So uh, give me give me your uh, your thoughts on that and, and hopefully this will be another topic of discussion again so that, you know, everybody kind of gets in on it because this is, this is a really important one, you know, of, of all of all of the things that I thought that I could do, you know, I'm I was kind of driven to jump into the system and, and help out in some way and I chose the media route because I thought it was the most important I mean it's not just because I could do it and I saw the opportunity to be able to do it but I also think it's extremely important it's, it's really important I mean it's it's the fourth estate it's it's the it's the final check on the government you know the people are the final check on the government and the people are only as good as the information they're getting so um I'm definitely concerned about this, and I'd like to hear what you have to say as well. So, um, I'm glad that I finally have a place where we can actually have a little bit of a dialogue rather than a, a one-way street here, and uh, and I hope you take part. So, until next time, I will speak to you again very soon. Have a good one, everybody. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend The anti-Bush press their interests are not your interests. Their truth is not your truth. The corporations have their own.
Now we have ours. The Progressive Podcast Network. Now we are the man. Listen to your media. Take your country back. Go to newmediarevolution.org. The Progressive Podcast Network. Newmediarevolution.org.